Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here this morning at uh, the Corporate Worship Center of Mitchell Brean Church. If you don't know me, I'm Scott Mathis, and uh, I'm the president of the Brean Fellowship. I used to be a part of this church family. We were here for 19 years, uh, pastoring here. Then God, has, God called us to over to Torrington, and we planted, uh, helped plant a church there, Sunrise Church, which is still going strong. And we were there five years, and then um, Pastor Giles actually threw my name in the hat to become president of the Berean Fellowship, which I had no desire to be, and uh, God worked, and here I am. So now my wife and I travel around to a different Berean church every weekend, encouraging God's people, building them up in the most holy faith, and challenging them that Jesus Christ is still in the business of saving people, and that uh, there are still thousands of people here in the North Platte Valley who do not yet know Jesus Christ, and some of you may even be here today, and you are still trying to figure out the whole God-Jesus thing, and uh, we welcome you. Thank you for coming. Uh, You know, God created us on purpose for a purpose. Every one of you here this morning has been created on purpose for a purpose. You are not some accident. You are not some person who has evolved out of some primordial soup and now just take up space on the planet. You are created in the image of God. God got you here today. God has a plan and a purpose for your life personally. He wants to work in your life in such a way and conform you into the image of his son in such a way that you walk out of these doors transformed. You're not here for some religious ritual exercise. You are not here for some social construct idea. You are here because God got you here and our encounters with God end up defining our life. And if you and I are created on purpose and for purpose by an all-knowing, all-purposeful God, then you and I can interact this morning with the Word of God in such a way that we end up growing into the image of Christ in such a way that we are the people that Christ created us to be. You're no accident. You're no mistake. You're here Your job in life is not to become a middle-class American. Your job in life is to bring glory to Christ. If this church is going to continue to impact people with the gospel of Christ, it is going to take us individually and then collectively as a group growing in such a way that those people who woke up this morning hungover That those people who are dreaming of cooking meth this afternoon in a desperate attempt to cover over the pain of their heart discover that Jesus Christ created them on purpose for a purpose. And Jesus Christ still is saving people and Jesus Christ is still working through his people. Why do you exist? You exist because God created you. And your parents might have called you a mistake or an afterthought, but God says, I have a plan for your life. This morning I'm going to preach through a a passage of Scripture that is really familiar. In fact, some of you might, when I say the name of the passage, you might just go ahead and take a nap because you know it. I'd encourage you not to. One of my mentors, actually the very first pastor of this church, Okay, this church started in late in 1959, and then they, they had this, their first pastor was a man named Kurt Lehman. He pastored here from 1960 to 1962, then left here and planted Lincoln Berean Church. 
But Pastor Kurt Lehman would tell me, he would say, Scott, don't be afraid to preach the familiar, famous passages of Scripture. He said they're familiar and famous for a reason, because they help God's people. And he would tell me, he said, preach Proverbs chapter 3 over and over again. Don't be afraid to keep preaching the same things over and over again. He said, preach Romans 12 over and over. And today, we're going to look at Hebrews 12, because he also said, keep preaching Hebrews chapter 12 over and over, because God's people need Hebrews 12. So the setting for this passage of Scripture is we don't actually, Hebrews is one of those books in the Bible we don't know for sure who wrote it. There's speculation, but we don't know who wrote this book. Ultimately, we know that God wrote it, right? Because God and his word are not separated. The Bible isn't a book about God, okay? It is a book by God. God wrote a book to reveal himself to mankind, And his ways are not our ways, but he carried people along to write down what he wanted so that we could know him. And yes, there are things in God's word that we're like, huh? I don't get that one. But there's a lot more that we do get that should cause us to say, hmm, God, you did write a book. And so the writer of Hebrews is is teaching the people he was writing to because many of them were transferring transferring from Judaism to Christianity. They were leaving a religion of rules and regulations that governed the very fabric of every part of their life to this relationship with Christ. And so whenever, and whether, if you're here and you're transforming, transferring from a re- religious, religion that's just about rules into a relationship, and I believe G is preaching on this right now, then it involves a real struggle in the heart of everyone who is leaving a, a, a way of life that is governed by outward conformity to an inward reality of Christ in them. And so he, he does a series, the writer does a series of contrasts contrasting how Jesus Christ is superior and greater than any old religious um, and even Old Testament sacrifice, but greater than the high priest, etc. And then he begins to teach about how in chapter 11 he, he lists all these people who walked by faith and God blessed them and God used them in their life. And then here in chapter 12, he begins to talk about, since we think back about all those people who walked by faith, and some of them died in the faith, never having complete human victory in their, in their everyday life, but they still were people of great faith. Because of that, and because Jesus is superior, and because Christianity is a relationship, not a bunch of rules, therefore, we can live this way. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. I believe we're going to put it up on the screen as well. Let's read through these verses that we're going to go and interact with today. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion, who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. 
After all, you have not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is training you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you, as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. So, take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. So much the reading of God's inerrant, inspired word. Let's pray and then allow the Lord to teach us through this passage. God, do a work through your word like only you can. Lord, there is a a certain amount of mystery to you, but there are also these interludes and, 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 and encounters with you where you are so real and so clear through your word that we can't help but be changed. And so, Lord, each one of us has been assigned a unique route on the race of life. And as we encounter you through this passage of Scripture, may we submit to your authority in our life. So do a work through your word like only you can. In your name, Jesus Christ, the word, amen. The writer begins here and he says, Therefore, therefore, since all these people that I just talked about in Hebrews 11, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, witnesses to the life of faith. Isn't that amazing? Now, this verse kind of sometimes begs the question, so are the people who we've known, who, who have went before us and are died, do they see us now? Are they witnessing our life here on earth? Do, do dead people see what we're going through or know what we're going through? And, 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 and again, there's, there's different interpretations of that, but the, the reality is, is that we do know that in heaven, when one sinner repents... Somehow people know, and there's great rejoicing in heaven. I do not believe that our loved ones can see all the junk in our life. Because there's no tears in heaven, okay? It's a place of joy and not sadness. I don't know completely, but the point here in this passage is that we can find hope and strength by the people who've walked before us. The people that this writer listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the great heroes of the faith, 
but also each one of us has a certain amount of people who we knew. They're like the real deal Christians. Most of us know like some real deal people who walk by faith, a grandma, someone in this church, and we know and we can be grateful for them because their witness causes us to stay in the race. So since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, he says we are to strip off every weight that slows us down. Do you know, I looked it up online, if I wanted to run the Boston Marathon, but trust me, I'm not going to, but if I wanted to run the Boston Marathon, do you know there is no rule that says I can't put a backpack filled with lead on my back and run the Boston Marathon? There's no rule against that. But have you seen very many people put a backpack full of lead and run the... No. There are some things in life that we carry that we shouldn't be. That quite frankly keep us weighed down in such a way that we can't go on in the walk and journey and marathon of life with Jesus. For me, I'll just throw out a few things that can weigh me down. Facebook. I love Facebook on some levels and I hate Facebook on other levels, right? You have the friends that post on there and everything's perfect. They're like, you know, I mean, they never struggle. Everything's beautiful, picture perfect. Then we have other friends, you know, everything's negative and bitter and cussing, you know. And, and then other people who are just got their shorts in a wad in almighty ways like about politics and all these things. And, and I can get weighed down by Facebook. So I have to limit it, Right? Now, that might not be an issue for you, for you, but for me, that can weigh me down. I can get weighed down by getting obsessed over sports. I'm an NBA fan. Go Nuggets. You talk about the last 10 years of being weighed down. <laughs> I had to become a Golden State fan as well. But no, we can, we can get so consumed with sports that ultimately they, they hinder our walk with Christ. Our jobs can weigh us down in such a way that we're like, sorry, too busy for you, God. So there's some things, and in, in, in the, the, the beauty of, of, of God being real in our encounters with God and being created on purpose for purpose is that God is so, showing you through his spirit. For some of you who are alive today, you're like, which I'm assuming is most of you, is, is like, hey, that weight, that's weighing you down. You don't really need that in your life. That stuff or those pets or that whatever that is just taking up all your time. So much so that you, you're, you're, not a, you're just a consumer Christian and not a contributor. So we're to strip off every weight that slows us down. And then he says, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. There's no rule in the Boston Marathon rules that says that you can't tie ropes around your legs with stuff on the end of them. There's no rule against that. But it doesn't help. You run the race, the marathon race of life. And some of you are living in deliberate disobedience in sin. And it's tripping you up. And you get going, and then you get tripped up yet again by this, this, this pat little love sin that you love. Now, you don't admit that you love it, but you really do. We, each one of us, have these certain set of sins that we kind of like, well, they're not as bad as so-and-so, so it's my little pet. I just tie it right here to my leg. It's good. 
I'll even pick it up when I run. Then it becomes a burden and a weight, too. And eventually you trip. Maybe there's sin in your life that you need to repent of this morning because you are hindered in the marathon race of life because you're carrying weight and sin that's tripping you up and slowing you down. And notice he says here in the end of verse 1, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. The race of life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Running the race with endurance means that we need to grow in having a holy rhythm of life. Many American Christians are way too busy. They have no time for intimacy with Christ or even in in, in their marriage. They, they, They have no time for study and prayer because they're working because, quite frankly, is I believe in Jesus, but the American dream is the real God of my life. The great, the great religion of the day in the United States of America. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm busy. I'm busy. We're all so busy that we have no time for Christ and his word and his church. But running the race with endurance means that we have this holy rhythm and pace of life where we can rest and race and rest and repeat. Too many people get hepped up by a corporate worship gathering or a concert or something, and boy, they sprint for a while, fall off to the wayside. Because they're relying many times on artificial uh, uh, energy to run the race. But to run the race in the long haul means that you train yourself in such a way that you eat right and exercise right through the word of God and prayer and Christian community. We see here now in verse 2, we do this. How do we do this? Running the, how do we run with endurance? How do we get rid of stripping off the weight and the sin that so easily trips us up? We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. It's really basic. Who are your eyes on? Facebook? Fox News? CNN? MSNBC? Preachers? politics, other Christians, all those things, when we get our eyes on any of them, we end up tripping up and falling by the wayside in the race of life. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus because we have a Savior. Listen, folks, we're, this is a Christian church, okay? We, we aren't worshiping some dead prophet who died 1,200 years ago whose bones we might be able to still find. We are worshiping the living Christ who died but rose from the dead. And he is the the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy that awaited him. He endured the cross disregarding its shame. The beauty of keeping our eyes on Jesus, our champion, is that he did it right. He did it perfectly. And he understood that there was joy beyond the cross. He disregarded its shame. Maturity in Christ means that you and I keep our eyes on Jesus in such a way that we refuse to be offended by the unfairness of life. Did you hear that? We refuse, our eyes are on Jesus. You see, so what happens so much of the time is we get consumed with, well, but... That other person, 
their route in their race of life is a lot smoother than mine? How come they get to walk that way and that's easy and I got this mountain to climb? What's up with that? And we trip up or we quit running. But no, we don't keep our eyes on other believers and their unique route to them and God's assignment for them. We keep our eyes on Jesus and run the race that he has set before us. Refuse to be offended by the unfairness of life. Refuse to be crippled by other people's sin against you. Because Jesus Christ paid not just for your sin, but for the sin that was done against you. You no longer have to be held hostage by the sins done against you. You don't have to be crippled by that. You do not have to be a victim anymore. Jesus Christ, the champion who, who endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. We worship a champion. And you and I do not have to be, be sucked into the victim mentality of current culture that says, I have to continue on my race all the time, rolling along instead of walking with Christ or running with Christ because of what's been done to me. Jesus Christ is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. And you and I, verse 3, need to think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up. What's going on in your mind? I know in my mind when I begin to fade off the route that Jesus has laid out for me, I've taken my eyes off Jesus and my mind goes in bad places, right? Every one of us does this. And I quit thinking about Jesus and all the hostility he endured from sinful people and I get my mind on the unfairness of life and my wounds and my worries and all this, and I get all consumed, and then I want to give up. But when I grow in maturity and learn to take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and throw them out and replace them with thoughts of the hostility of, uh, that he, Jesus endured from sinful people, I'm like, man, Jesus, that was really hard. My, my route isn't near as hard as yours was. I can keep going. Okay, Jesus, sign me up for another day. And that's why he means in this next verse, in verse 4, after all, you've not yet given your lives in your struggle against sin. Jesus gave his life in his struggle against sin that we committed, and he never did. He was perfect. So we need to think about him because we haven't given our lives in our struggle against sin. So let's go on to this next verse in verse 5. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? Okay, so he's talking about God speaking through God, his word because he's quoting here from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. God said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. Do you know that if you're a truly a born-again Christian, you're here today, that if you're a Christian, God's going to discipline you at times when you get straying off the path he's lined up for you. And he's going to discipline you. Now, he uses a wide variety of things to discipline us. And sometimes we don't know if it's 
what's happening in our life is because we're straight off the path or because we're on the path. Quite honestly, there's a mystery here. And in and, and, and real Christianity, it always wrestles with that tension, honestly. Am, am, I, am I having this health crisis because I've been disobedient? Or because, God, it's just part of living here on earth in a fallen world. We can't, and we can, some, there's some things we have to treat lightly with God. We can't make him make sense and make our human suffering sometimes make sense. But I do believe we need to say, God, is what I'm going through, this relational problem or this health crisis or financial crisis or, or this, this, this depression or discouragement that I, season that I'm in, Lord, is it because you are disciplining me? I do believe we need to ask that question. And God, I understand that your word tells me, and I can see it in myself, that our two main responses when you do begin to discipline us, when we figure out if we, yes, you are disciplining me, we sometimes will make light of it, joke about it, or just ignore it, and everybody has problems, I'm only human, oh well, whatever. That's one main response, but an even greater response is people give up. We give up when he corrects you. This valley is littered with people, many of them I know, who were part of this church family at one point, running the race well. And God disciplined them because they kind of started to stray off the, the course. And they said, pun it, isn't worth it. And those people still need reached people. Reach out to them. Keep inviting them. Keep loving on them. So two main responses here from God's word. We make light of the Lord's discipline or we give up when he corrects us. Verse 6, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Now, God loves everybody, okay? God is love. The writer here is referring to this, the, 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 this father-child relationship. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child He does. As you, verse 7, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Years ago, when our kids were little, we were at the uh, park in Scott's Bluff, and our little boy, or our son, who was little at the time, Shane, Shane was playing with a bunch of other little boys, and they got to be an ornery. And I forget what they were doing, maybe throwing mud at each other or something. And they were just being disobedient little boys. So I walk over there, and I said, Shane Mathis, come here. He came over, and I disciplined him, and I began to talk to him. No, you're not going to do that. He's like, but, but what about those other boys? How come you're not getting on them, Dad? I said, those aren't my kids. You are. And folks, if you're a truly born-again child of the Most High God, he's going to discipline you. And you can look at some people who don't know, yet know Christ, and man, they sure seem to have a good time being disobedient, huh? You look at them and think, wow, must be nice. And then you try to be disobedient, and God whips your butt, right? Because it shows that you're his real child. Who ever heard of a child who's never disciplined by its father? He asked the rhetorical question. If God's discipline... If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means you're you're illegitimate and are not really his children at all. If you're here today and you can sin without any conviction, oh, you might have moments of regret over some of your sin, but if you can just sit here and just 
you're kind of just doing your own thing in life and you never feel conviction over your sin or sorrow over your sin, maybe you're not truly a born-again Christian. You're not really God's kid. And today, maybe right now, today, even as I'm preaching, you need to say, oh, wow, this is starting to make sense. I don't want to keep living in sin Because even though it feels good for a while, there's always this backside of it that's wicked and horrid and just sucks the life right out of me. Jesus, I don't get it all but you, but I'm going to turn from my sin, and I'm going to turn from society, and I'm going to turn from Satan himself, and I'm going to turn to you, Jesus, as my Savior, and believe in you today. Maybe you need to do that. And if you're nervous right now while I'm talking about this, if you're nervous, if you're like, oh boy, he's talking about that salvation stuff and... If you're nervous right now, maybe that's a sign that God's saying, listen, you're not right with me. And you need to believe in my son and get his righteousness transferred into your account and be made right within my holy sight because of my holy son. I would encourage you to do that right now. If you're not a believer in Christ, turn to Christ right now. The Bible is clear that, 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 that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And if you believe in him, you'll be saved from hell and damnation. Because if you can sin, that means you're illegitimate and not feel bad about it in a a sorrowful way, then it means you're illegitimate. But my friends, who God disciplines his own. I remember years ago, back in 1992, we, we were on a ranch north of Harrison that I loved this ranch. I ran this ranch for, for a, a dear guy, and I had it made, man. I was up there with my horses and my cows and my dogs. I loved that ranch. And then Mitchell Berean was without a pastor, and I came and filled the pulpit, and they asked me to become the pastor. And I said, yeah, but, sure, but. And I told him, well, yeah, I'll, I'll be the pastor. And now we, Di and I knew, we knew God was telling us that we needed to accept that call to be the pastor at Mitchell Berean. We very clearly knew. But man, I didn't want to leave that ranch. Quite frankly, horses and dogs and cattle are a lot easier to deal with than people. I don't know if you know that, but especially for me, because I pretty much stink at life. The only thing I can do in life is ride a horse. And, and, and God very clearly made it. But I, kept, I was disingenuous with the elders. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come, but just let me keep coming down every Sunday and preaching. And then next spring, like six months later, after I get my heifer's calf, then I'll become your pastor. And quite frankly, I look back now and I, was being, I wasn't telling the truth. I was putting them off because I wanted the best of both worlds. And I knew God told me. So I saddle up my horse one morning and I'm headed down to help Andy Fetterly gather a set of Hereford bulls. Maybe it was because they were Hereford bulls this happened. No, I, You guys who aren't cow people, that was a good joke, okay? <laughs> Chris gets my joke. Um, anyway, so I, I had bought this horse off a bucking string, and, and he, he was coming along really good. And I rode him down through this really steep um, um, canyon thingy, and I come up out of the other side. And when I come up out of the other side, the keeper broke between my front and back cinch, and that back cinch slid back to his flank. And I topped it, come up over that, out of that, that draw, and that horse bogged his head and went to bucking now. It always seems like they're bucking worse when you're on them. But anyway, he bucked me off. And I hung up. And this foot was stuck in the stirrup. And he's bucking across the pasture, dragging me. 
and God was there. And I'm not kidding you folks. I had an encounter with God as that horse is dragging me across the pasture where God, God was like, listen, I told you to go pastor that church. Don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. When I tell you to do something, you won't pay it. And for the rest of my life, when God tells me to do something, I want to obey. Now I haven't hoist on it. But there are those of you old people who've been around since 1992. You remember I preached the first few months at Mitchell Brian sitting down because it popped my pelvis out. The doctor was so excited. He'd come into the hospital room and they got me in there. He's like, Scott, you, your pelvis, it's just like a woman's after she's had a baby. It's just <laughs> wide open. I'm like, great. That's really great. I mean, I'm glad you're enthused, you know? So I waddled around with this big thing around my hips. I couldn't ranch, but I could preach because God said, I love you. And I called you and assigned you to be a pastor to, your, to my people and you will obey me. Now your life might not have that dynamic and clear cut discipline deal, but my God is personal and my God is powerful. And my God is working in every one of your lives this morning, whether you're here in this room or on that internet, and my God will do whatever, he ta- whatever it takes to get your attention. And you can be a Jonah and think you can outrun the voice and call of God, or you can be like your Savior who said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Because God, whom God loves, he disciplines Do we always know if the discipline we're going through is because we're disobedient or because of others' disobedience? Not always. There's a certain mystery to human existence where we say, okay, God, I don't get it. But most of the time, he will make it clear in your life. Verse 9, since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live Forever. Who's your authority this morning, folks? Who's your authority? The trials and circumstances of your life or your feelings, your messed up upbringing, an ex-spouse. Who's your authority? Kids on the playground calling you names. Who's your authority? Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of our spirits and live forever? Verse, nine, verse 10, excuse me, for our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years doing the best they knew how. Some of them didn't know how to do, do it very well. Some of them lost their cool way too quick. Some of them didn't listen. Some of them were drunks. Some of them, all they've done for you is provide the sperm that, so you could be conceived. Most of them did the best they knew how. Most of them were trying to be a little better than their dad. But most of them were doing the best they knew how. But the beauty of our Heavenly Father, last sentence of verse 10, but God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. God's discipline is always good. We have a good, good Father who's perfect. And he disciplines us, but he knows exactly what we need And he's not mean or vindictive. 
He is patient and loving and firm and absolutely committed to, to, to get us to understand that he disciplines us because we need to share in his holiness. There is no joy outside of personal holiness and having a pers- passion for personal holiness in our everyday life. Holiness is not something to be scared of, but we are called to be holy because Christ is holy. And through the whole power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to be separated unto God for his holy use. We share in his holiness. Some of the most holy people I know have went through incredible trials where God has disciplined them. And now they shine forth. I couldn't help but sit there, and this is our third service, right? So I've sang the songs three times now. But I couldn't help but think of our dear brother Ken who leads us. And if you haven't heard his story, have him tell you his story. But there's a man who strayed far from God. And why does he have such a holy passion? Because Ken Bear knows the grace of Christ and the power of Christ in his individual life. It's a phenomenal story. Miraculous story. Because he wants to share in the holiness of God because God disciplined that man in very clear ways. Verse 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's just not. It's painful. I'm really glad that the Bible isn't current contemporary Christianity. Current contemporary Christianity says we all have to place the, you know, happy face on our life face and, you know, we're all good all the time. No, sometimes there are seasons of life where the the race is hard because we have weights we're carrying and don't even know we're carrying them. And there's, there are seasons of life where it's painful and lonely and depressing and discouraging But there are seasons of life that we need to get and push through. Because afterwards, there's this peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. I have circled for those who are trained in this way. The meaning is clear there. Not everybody gets trained by God's discipline, so he has to keep disciplining them. (laughs) Honestly. If you are repeatedly going through discipline season after discipline season, maybe the common denominator is your own insolent disobedience. Because you never get trained into a righteousness or right living. But for those who are trained in righteousness and right living, there's a peaceful harvest that occurs in your life. So verse 12, so... So in light of all these previous verses, take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. So take a new grip. How do we take this new grip with our tired hands and strengthen our weak knees and mark this straight path out for ourselves? Think back what we just went through. Verse 1, remember witnesses who've went before us. Verse 1, get rid of the unnecessary weights in our life. Verse 1, repent of sin that is tripping us up and cut the ropes and get free from them. Verse 2, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the champion. 
We need to think on him and all the hostility endured. We need to not make light of the Lord's discipline or give up when he disciplines us because we can respond rightly. We need to see the love of God in our Heavenly Father who never disciplines us wrongly and not compare our unique path and route in our life with others. Because, look at verse 13 again, we mark out this straight path for our feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. You're not just living for yourself. There are people who are weak and lame who need you to get up Brush yourself off and get back in the race. Strengthen your weak hands. Strengthen your weak knees. Take a new grip and here we go again. And maybe today because you were created on purpose for a purpose. And God never makes a mistake. And your motive for coming here might have been because your wife made you. Or your mommy made you. Or someone else made you come or guilted you into coming. But the reality is, is God got you here because he wanted to speak personally into your life and say, listen, I have a route in the pathway of life for you personally. And you need to run it. And you can live in rebellion about your own route. And how stupid could you have been to to marry this person (laughs) that, that you have to go on this route with? Or you can say, God, you're in charge and you're in control and I'm going to submit to your authority in my life. And I'm going to quit trying to carry all this extra weight and quit and cut the ropes that are causing me to trip. And I'm going to keep my eyes on you. God got you here for a reason. He loves you. He doesn't want you to waste your life trying to live an American dream, which is so bogus. Such an empty way of life. He doesn't want you living out, letting other people define you. He wants you to live in the glory and the beauty of Jesus, your creator, owner, savior, friend. Jesus, thank you for being here today, speaking to each one of us. It amazes me, Jesus, that you're so big And yet you're so personal. Like you can speak to me and you can speak to everyone here. And then you're speaking to people, my friends over in India, in some language I could never understand. But you're speaking to them. And you created them on purpose for a purpose. And you're you're speaking to them personally too. You're big, but you're personal. You are so powerful, but you're personal. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking to us today. We want to respond right now. We don't want to stiff arm you. We don't want to stay off the path that you've assigned us. We want to get up and run the race. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks, Mitchell Brian. I love you. I think we're dismissed now.